In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of the Lord. Praise be God. Hi. Thank you for that reading. Kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. They're making resurrection rolls. Is that right, Kelly? So that means I've lost. Don is going down there now to make resurrection rolls. started last week uh, a series that sort of is going to look through um, we come up with a better language for it sort of what is the structure of our common life together what are the values and things that we hold initially I had other ideas and this that and the other and it's um, it's for me as uh, most people would say I preach way too much and that's including people here um, but uh, for me, I often don't know where a sermon series is going until we start and start moving through it. Um, and that's partially due to the fact that we go from one to one to one with no break in between. I know I should be better at that. Um, but, but what's become clear to me is that we're sort of talking about what our common life looks like together. Like what, is, what is it we hold in common both in our worship and in our values and in our caring that we sort of um, would make us distinct, per se, um, would bring something to out of us. And, and the image we use for that, going back to the Sermon on the Mount series, although it works for, for Israel as well, is that Christ calls this people in the world, which would be that inner circle. Um, and then, uh, Jesse, do you mind turning me down a little bit? It seems loud to me. Um, but uh, the Christ calls this inner circle, and the circle outside of that is the church that is being gathered to him. It's the community in the Sermon on the Mount that comes to the mountain to listen to, who Christ calls out towards the front. It's also, um, if you wanted to go back to the Old Testament, it's those who are at the Mount of Moriah with, with Moses that hear the law, that these people are being bound together in this way. And on the periphery of that is the watching world to some degree. And there, um, they may be called into the life of the church, they may not. But really, it's for this church to be sort of this concentrated thing around who Christ is in the world. One of the ways we think about that is, is those inner circles moving close. Is what does that mean for us at Defiance Church? And so this image, which you'll get sick of, but I did try to fix it some this week, 
um, is, is we have sort of one mission as Defiance Church, which is now on the back of the bulletin. Um, the, the mission of Defiance Church is to be a witness to the reign of God, reconciling all things to himself. That's our mission. Um, and that would be the mission for like most churches in a lot of ways. It's, it would hit a lot of places, not literally written out that way, but it's to say that the church exists as a body on earth to some way be pointing to that which is beyond it. And we went through the language last week on, on why some of the language we use might be a little bit different. To say we're witness is to say we're not the thing. Um, to say that we're sort of being testifiers to what it is. And this is another way in which it, it gives us a difference in that we know that we are not the saviors of the world. This doesn't mean as Christians we don't work to better the world around us, but at the end of the day we know that the reconciling that's coming comes from the one we call Father, Son, and Spirit. It doesn't come uh, from the church or from within our body. We're witnesses to that. The next thing we focused on were what we call the theological virtues. But what St. Thomas Aquinas, and many, not what we call, what the tradition for many years is called the theological virtues. Uh, don't put trademark match on that one at all, um, or Defiance Church. Uh, and they are faith, hope, and love coming from 1 Corinthians 13 and Thessalonians, a couple other spots in the New Testament. But one of the ways we tried to, to sort of give depth to that was to say that faith is this looking towards the past. It's saying that because God raised Israel out of Egypt, raised Jesus from the dead, and has brought me into new life because of my baptism, I can trust in what God has done. I have seen the good works of God in the world. So faith has this backwards-looking dimension in which we receive comfort and goodness and saving from God. We have seen that he has conquered the grave. We've seen many of the things we proclaim in worship, and so we have faith today. And that's, that's sort of a backwards looking one in the way we talk about it. Hope is sort of our future stance to the world. Hope is the way in sort of we look toward the coming reign in which all things will be renewed. Um, and hope is this consummation that the church works and waits towards. This is how we stand as people looking towards that glorious day that uh, we sang about, that we, that we sort of um, lean forward in hope. That's our future-looking one. And with a, a past based in faith and a future based in hope, in the present we live in love. And if you think about it, faith in what God has done in his, the past, knowledge of those stories, opens up pathways for love in the present that would seem closed if you didn't know those stories. Hope in a reconciling and full future in which all tears shall be wiped and death shall be no more, gives us different pathways for love that wouldn't be there if we didn't um, have that hope. Uh, it's a, a love in the present um, that, that probably wouldn't say love is love is love, but would be more robust than that, would have more of a defining character than that. So these are the, the first sort of uh, one and the three. The next thing for a common life is these five things, and these will be um, uh, different values. I haven't put the word for this yet, as you can see by the line on the side. Pray for me. Um, if you have one, let me know. Um, but there's there's this way in which that these next five are going to be um, rooted in our worship. And we talked about this last week, is that these five will flow out of our worship into our daily lives. They're not just things that are locked in the church. And, and my hope um, and I think this is what we try to stick with as best as we can, is that what we do on Sunday morning is a witness that goes out into the rest of our lives. So the next one, 
Leave you in the dark on two of them. The third one, I don't even know what it is. And the last one, I have some ideas, but I have not finished yet. Um, the last one will be table. Um, and so word and table are these two that sort of make up the center of our worship together. And we're going to talk about how word goes with us. We read and hear it here. We take it in here, but we practice that during the week. We read our Bibles during the week. We, we take time to commune with the word. We speak it during the week. That it doesn't just live here in the church. Um, table, too. We, we see the way the table is open for us here in its unique way. And if you remember back to the Easter series probably three or four years ago, there, were, there was a closed circle, a half circle, and an open circle in ways of thinking about there's the table that we partake in as the church, but in the furthest sort of open circle, that all tables are tables in which we can invite the risen Christ to meet with us. There's different intensities or varies along the way, but these become witness to, to further things. That we greet each other in worship, that we go out sent, that we do these things. We're all things that are meant to be shapes for our lives as we go on mission and witness to who God is. So that brings us to word for this week. Um, I would say that... Um, well, just one last thing, that this triple helix uh, image I like for what we're doing here, because we don't really want to build five separate things or eight separate things or ten separate things or this, that, and the other, but make one thing that's sort of bound together. It's one common life for our church. So the intent is not to sort of make a whole bunch of different strands and you pick which strand you're on and this, that, and the other, but to say, well, my gift is really in the Word, so I don't have to do table, or my gift is on the is to say that there's sort of one um, rope or, or uh, DNA or something like that that we're all being pulled to. Uh, but that brings us to word for today, the, the often what we consider um, the holy scriptures, um, the canonical scriptures, if you want to use that language. Um, and there's, there's a couple things I want to say about this before we get started. One is doing scripture is way more fun than talking about scripture. Um, does that make sense? That, that when I get to study all week on one portion of scripture and focus on that and then get up and share what I've learned is a lot more fun than saying from 10,000 feet, what is scripture? And in churches, historically, this probably started in the early 1900s and was carried through, certainly it still exists in this century, with this is how churches divide. What do you say of scripture? Do you say it's inerrant, infallible, um, inspired? Do you say that it's a witness to God? Do you say it contains all things? Do you say, and all these words are sort of words we've come up to describe scripture. Some of them don't even occur in scripture. Um, inerrancy being the most notable one, didn't occur anywhere until like 1910. So it's a word we made up to describe the characteristic of scripture that, that many people find valuable. But that's where we start talking about these things Scripture and word from this place of, of certainty about what it is, I think we diminish the thing. Well, there's a, there's a thing we'll say about communion when we get to table at the end that I love from C.S. Lewis. Is he says that if there's a coal in a fire and it's producing a lot of heat and you take it out to examine it, it begins to instantly diminish in the heat that it has. For Scripture at Defiance Church, and, and I think for many Christians, it's this... Um, hot um, pulsing coal that is amazing for us and oftentimes we want to take it apart and take it out of the fire of where it belongs in worship in our devotional lives and begin to describe it and what happens is the heat that is there begins 
diminished because it's been pulled from where it belongs. And so the two readings we read um, right before the sermon, uh, Genesis and John 1, um, Genesis 1 and John 1, have both this notion of what the word is. It says that God speaks creation. Divine word we use mainly for the Bible, but the Bible uses it for many things. The creation comes as a gift from the divine spoken word. John wants to say that the word is Jesus. And that the word is not necessarily print on the page in John, but the one who becomes flesh and lives amongst us. And so this is um, an odd thing, but the, the 66 books that make up our Bible, um, that make up what we call the Word of God, which is holy and true and is no meant, meant to be diminished by what I'm about to say next, are something that the church came to after, um, after, the, the, after most of the New Testament is written, let's put it that way. And so when Timothy hears that all scripture is God reused for this, um, it's pretty clear that they're primarily talking about the Old Testament. Um, they're primarily talking about what's not um, who Jesus is. And their trust, interestingly enough, what separates us, I think, from the early church, is their trust is what they see enacted in Jesus Christ is so embedded in what God has always said and done for the Old Testament. And for us, we're like, I really like the God of the New Testament more than the God of the Old Testament, which can we just say, we'll never say here. Um, they're the same person, same three persons, whatever you want to say, but that's not a helpful phrase. And if you really want to get into it, there's, there's more reasons that the New Testament can be equally as terrifying as the Old Testament can for us. Um, and I use equally terrifying in a good way. Um, these are things that are meant to knock us off kilter. And so what I've, what I've meant by having those read is sort of this way in which what we say about word and scripture, um, we can lock um, too tightly. And this word gets tricky because you don't say any of those things. You can, uh, if you want, there's a reformed saying that the scripture is the norming norm that is normed by no other norm. There's a weird way of saying that scripture is that which is normal for what we understand as holy living and who God is, and it is not normed by any other norm. It is in itself adequate to be that. There was a, a controversy a couple years ago about a devotional that was trying to be written as if God was speaking to you, and a thinker I don't like, but I agree with them on this, said, well, if you want to hear God speaking to you, read scripture out loud. Um, because it's the place in which we sort of say revelation exists. And maybe that's the word that I should have written down earlier um, for this sermon. It is in there. <laughs> is that the revelation, Scripture is the site of revelation on how this God has been acting in the world. We're going to have two images that I'll put up on the screen that get to that. But before we do, I want to say a little bit that why this word comes up for us. The first sermon I gave at the Defiance Church when I literally had no idea what I'm doing, 50% towards having an idea of what I'm doing now. Um, the was on the Bible because it was one I had given someplace else, and I didn't know what technology worked in here. Um, I probably knew Park's name, but didn't know anything about him. Um, and so I gave a sermon on sort of how the Bible had related to me in my life, and that was an easy way to get out of giving a testimony and not having to do too much my first Sunday. But it started there. What happened after that was we did a sermon series on the book of Ruth. 
Um, and what we did for the first Sunday in that book of Ruth, which many of you weren't here, um, was had a, everybody who will, well, the theory was to have a select portion of the church come up and read the whole book of Ruth in a reader's theater format like we had done before. Um, the problem with it was the church was so small, it was, it was six of us reading and two people watching six people read the book of Ruth to them. Um, but that value that we have around the word and, and to, to give up time for that. You know, well, I could have read the book of Ruth at home, somebody could have said. Why would I come to church and hear it read aloud? And that value about how we hold scripture together in the Science Church, I think, comes from all these times in which we take time to read it aloud in long portions together. One of the things that most people miss about scripture today is for most of Christian history, the, the, the Bible was a heard book, not a read book. There are two realities that, that press into us why that is. One is the notion of a 99% literate populace is unique. The second is Bibles were written by hand and sort of brought around and shared. So big churches in, in earlier Christian times might have one copy of all the scriptures, but there was no individual copies in people's houses. And so the history of what the word is is this thing that is heard by the people of God. Often in the Old Testament, you'll hear the people gathered and the, the word is read aloud to them. But it's not something they privately go home and say, what is God saying to me today? And it's a gift that we live in a world where something like that can exist, but we have to recognize that that's an exception to the normative stance of the church. But more than that, we can say that then scripture as revelation is about a listening life. We are people who listen to God speaks to us. We don't um, speak. This revelation it is spoken to us. It's a received thing. And that way it's a grace for us. And this will probably be true of all these things, because these are actually things that are received to us. We don't ingeniously come up with them on ourselves, but there are things that come to us. So the Christian life isn't just a speaking life, but it's a listening life. And the place where we listen the most is the Bible, the place in which we find sort of the truth that resides. And it's um, that norming norm that is normed by no other norm is to say that like anything outside of that it, it, that's an exception is in some sense is, is um, not biblical in, in, in the way that it's like that's not what we're about. What we come and gather around is this norming norm. And what I think is interesting about that is I've used that description with other Christians is to say that I'm not saying what you're doing is wrong. Um, I'm saying that well, at least for our church, we're going to slot in this place where there's these, these normative things that arise will be what we're about more than things we can put around the outsides. And so that's a little bit of uh, the history about the fine church. Things we've added that I think are... Um, Endearing to me is the, the word of the Lord. We got, and that part is a tradition of, which says that when the people respond like that, all of us participated in the reading then. That it wasn't just one person reading, but we all are participants in the reading. So when we do that, the second is, is today we didn't do it, and I think I was the first person to sit down because I was confused, is we often stand for the reading of Scripture. It's, it's, it's to say as if that comes to us from the outside. 
And then there, there's an honor there. There's a respect there. There's most traditions you would stand only for the gospel reading, but because we're standing for worship, we stand for the other ones. And I, I deeply like that about our church, that we stand for those moments when we hear from Scripture and, and this God speaking to us. And so that's sort of where we start with this. The readings we have for today, John and Genesis, we talk about Psalm 119 and this lamp of Timothy. Um, this teaching, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, this is sort of the classic what is scripture definition, and it probably is the best one. All scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for our teaching, our rebuking, our correcting, and training in righteousness. And, and it doesn't stop there, but so, so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's like the, the end goal of all this scripture is so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we lock that off at our own ear. When we say, well, it's just there for study, it's just there for this, it's just there for other, it's so that we are equipped by who God has called us to be through his revelation. That we have this way of sort of, of being drawn into that. The first image for today um, is, is this one. Um, Caravaggio, Carla, saying it right? Caravaggio, how do you say it? Caravaggio. Uh, is this painting of, of St. Matthew's inspiration for, uh, the inspiration of St. Matthew is what it's called. And so the guy sitting there um, is St. Matthew, and the angel above is sort of um, guiding him in his writing. Now this, this is an earlier draft of the painting that I think most of us think how scripture was written. Matthew, write this. <laughs> the angel puts his hand on his hand, so much so that Matthew is no longer the one writing scripture, but the angel or God is the instrument in writing scripture. Um, and, I, and, and this image, uh, he, he didn't do. I think it's un, might be under the one he painted, or it's under some other painting, as they reused canvases during this time. But like you could, you could see the difference here. So this sort of is like, um, our doctrine of scripture is that God wrote it. Um, and so much so that Matthew is superfluous to confess, which raises the question, why use a disciple at all? Why not just write it through Bob? Um, and, but this one captures, I think, what we see happening in Scripture better, is that Matthew in this instance is becoming a witness to something he sees that is caught up above him. And in this looking up, he's inspired to write the Gospel of Matthew. And I think the differences here matter a lot. The, the, the image that I have for this comes from, this is a book by Eugene Peterson. Many people have come up with this image in itself. In a way, it sounds like uh, Plato's analogy of the cave, if you're familiar with it, although it has notable differences. But I want to read what uh, a way of thinking about revelation in this way can be a little bit different for us. Imagine a group of men and women in a huge warehouse. They were born in the warehouse, grew up in it, and have everything there for their needs and comfort. There are no exits to the building, but there are windows. But the windows are thick with dust and never cleaned, and so no one bothers to look out. Why would they? The warehouse is everything they know, has everything they need, 
But then one day, one of the children drags a step stool under the window, scrapes off the grinds, and looks out. He sees people walking on the streets. He calls to his friends to come and look. They crowd around the window. They never knew a world outside existed. And then they notice a person out on the street looking up and pointing. Soon several people are gathered looking up and talking excitedly. The children look up, but there is nothing to see but the roof of the warehouse. They finally get tired of watching these people out on the street acting crazily, pointing up and getting nothing and getting excited about it. What's the point of stopping for no reason at all, pointing at nothing at all, and talking up a storm about the nothing? But what these people in the street were looking at was an airplane, or geese in flight, or a giant pile of clouds. The people in the street look up and see the heavens and everything in the heavens. The warehouse people have no heavens above them, just a roof. What would happen if one day one of the kids cut a door out of the warehouse, coaxed his friends out, and discovered that the immense sky above them had grand horizons? That is what happens, or writes Karl Barth, when we open the Bible. We enter the totally unfamiliar world of God, a world of creation and salvation, endlessly above and beyond us. Life in the warehouse never presented us anything like this. This way of looking at this looking up in, in Caravaggio's painting, I think, calls to us in that in Scripture we're invited to look up. And Bart's telling this analogy. Um, Bart says, imagine you're up on the eighth store, third step, eighth, eighth story of a warehouse, and you're looking out and you're looking down at everybody on the street. And they're all looking up and reacting as something you're looking down above you. And what scripture is for him is the looking down of the people on the street looking above them. They've been captured by what God has done in the world, the world that he has created and made. And what we get a chance to look at in scripture is to see people reacting to that word and that world. This is how it becomes that norming norm. But what we're invited into as Christians is not to say, okay, how does those people's reaction to what God has done apply to my life? What we're invited to actually do is to turn around and to move into relationship with God. And so the quote on the back of the bulletin for this week, which I think is, is, is just fire, um, because I think it speaks as well um, today as it did uh, when Barb wrote it. Um, Ere long, the Bible says to us in a manner candid and friendly enough with regard to the version we make of it. We make a lot of versions of it. Not just in the, when you go, I went to Barnes & Noble recently, which was interesting, because I thought it would have changed a lot. It hasn't changed at all. Huge side note. Um, but they have a lot more Bibles than I remember. Um, and from every man's battle with um, NASCAR to um, to the teenage girls life application Bible but before you turn 50 um, like we have all these versions of it and it's not to say that devotional Bibles are bad but we just keep making endless versions of the Bible here long the Bible says to us in a manner candid and friendly enough with regard to the versions we make of it these may be you but they are not I they may perhaps suit you Meeting the demands of your thought and temperament, of your era, of your circle, of your religious or philosophical theories. You wanted to be mirrored in me, and you have really, and you have really found me in your own reflection. 
But now I bid you come and seek me as well. Seek what is here. It is the Bible itself. It is the straight, inexorable logic of it, uh, of it on March, which drives us out beyond ourselves and invites us without regard to our worthiness or unworthiness to reach for that last highest standard in which all that can be said and all that and although can be hardly understood and only stammeredly expressed, and it is the answer. It is the new world, the world of God. This is from an essay called The Strange New World of God. What he's trying to reclaim in the early 1900s, which I think we're still trying to reclaim today, is scripture is narrating us into the world of God. It's describing the contours of what is going on around us. And so if we um, there's a quote from Alistair McIntyre that I think speaks to our age in a particularly good way. I can only the crash answer the question of what am I to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part of? I can only answer how I'm going to act in the world if I know what texts and what stories I'm acting in. For Christians, and what Lord is saying is that what we're going to find if we break open scripture in a way where we don't think seek to find ourselves in it, we're going to find it's describing the world that we inhabit and that we go out into as participants in God's story. It's not something foreign to us way back. It's not something that we make theories out of. It's not something we just probe. It's something that's narrating our world. When we meet to talk about kids' church, which we haven't done in a while, one of the main things I hope comes from kids' church is that they learn to, to inhabit the narrative universe of the scriptures, which is why it's so story-based, is that they learn to be able to think about what the scriptures are saying to us. There's a theologian biography um, this was before we had TV, which I think probably gave him a more captive imagination, that said when they had Palm Sunday, he would go home and look out his window to think as if Palm Sunday could be that day. That it describes something that happens in the world. And so our hope with scripture in our, in our Sunday school is that it becomes the story by which they say, how am I to act in this situation? I know what story I'm a part of. And if they're like me, they can choose not to act that way, but they know confession is also part of that story, and so is forgiveness. Um, the, uh, the next quote and final image. Um, Christians today often think of their world in vocabularies of contemporary politics or popular culture. But the Bible offers us an alternative. These poor folks across town are not just welfare recipients or even fellow citizens, they're neighbors. The action that just happened isn't inappropriate behavior or even crime, it was sin. When we use such a vocabulary, we find ourselves thinking about the world in different ways. And sometimes at least, we may find common grounds with other Christians for whom we were divided when only our language is that of contemporary politics. To trust the Bible, to let it define our world, provide a language for our thinking about the world, and transform our lives. This is the theologian William Plackard. Um, this is to say that so often when the church gathers, we use the language we've been gifted to by the world. And evidently, if you check the news, it's not going well there. Somehow we think it'll go better here. Um, but what Christians have in this revelation, this narrative world that we're called into through scripture, that God has opened up for us and called us into, is a way to use different language to talk about what's going on in the world. 
So often, the language we use already comes preloaded with everything else on top of it, when we discern together, when we talk together, when we read together. But what we have possible in scriptures is not just to rediscover ourselves again, but to find something else. But one last image, and I'll share a story with it. This image I love, and it comes, um, this is Old Woman Reading the Bible, I think it's actually the title of the painting, which is like, spent a lot of time on that one, because um, uh, it's literally an old woman reading the Bible. Um, but what happens is, if you look at this, is this woman is being illuminated by what is before Psalm 119 that we read at the start of the, the service is that the Lord, the word is a lamp unto my feet. When we read scripture corporately together here for some of the things we talked about, but when we read it individually in this way, then it can illumine our faces and our lives. It can bring us into different places. To say that when I go home and open scripture that I expect to meet God is not um, an overstatement. I expect to meet God. I expect to have some of that light shine before me, to give me steps for my path. And so this image captures that well. One of the things that I'll send out as we go through these in an attempt to get these into our lives more is in the email this week, there'll be resources for scripture reading at home from Bible and year plans um, to uh, lectionaries to ways to read and pray the Psalms. I'll put those together and send them out. In hopes that we can do that practice more. But one of the things I've noticed this past year is I've been resistant to Bible and year plans because I think we think quantity equals quality. Um, but oftentimes, when I've done, and Kelly and I have talked about this Bible and year plans, it's did I get my reading done? You can see the light diminishing in this woman's face as you read it to get your reading done. And that's not to say there isn't a place for Bible and year plans. But this year, Kelly um, and I and, and our prayer meeting all got this copy of the Gospels, and we're just going to try and read through the Gospels slowly this year. And I tell you, that's been richly rewarding to focus on one scripture passage. So there's, there's this last story, I, um, some of you might be familiar with it, of Osella McCarthy. Osella McCarthy was born in 1908 and died in 1999. Um, she was a, I want to get this right, a laundress in Mississippi. Uh, she's an African-American laundress, and she made pretty much no money. She also pretty much spent no money. She walked everywhere. Her banker had to convince her later in life to buy an air conditioner, which to live in Mississippi without air conditioning just sounds to me like that in itself. Um, uh, to buy an air conditioner, she had a black and white TV. She never paid for the newspaper because she thought it was frivolous. And she lived a meager life on making meager money. What happens is she begins to grow a savings account. And what her banker sits her down and says, what do you want to do with this money? And uh, Osella is not going to spend it on herself. And so what she does is she brings uh, dimes to the banker. And she says, I want a dime, 10%, to go to my church. I want 10% to go to each of my living family members. Uh, 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 Sello didn't have kids, um, but she wanted 10% to go to each of her family members. And then she said, I want the other 60% to go to a scholarship at the University of Southern Mississippi that helps low-income students go there. Somehow news of this became popular before she died, which I think was a little sad, because then she got rewards and all this. 
Um, but what's interesting about her is, is, it, is and if you read Gilead with us, Marilyn Robinson shares this tidbit about her that stuck with me ever since then, is that when they picked up Osella's Bible, the uh, book of First Corinthians almost fell out of it. And she was almost, um, there's a question of how literate she was. Uh, people would often describe her as, as barely literate. But what Marilyn Robinson says about that is, when you think, here is this woman who by many standards might have been considered marginally literate, but by another standard would have been considered a major expert on the meaning of First Corinthians. In other words, McCarthy's graph of First Corinthians, which Paul lays out the kind of behavior which was the fruit of Christian convictions, reveals what it means to read the text, the scripture, well. It shows that your comprehension and uh, exegesis has an inescapable ethical content to it. As we go forth, inspired by witnesses, many stories like this, what does it mean to know a portion of it so well? You're better than me, maybe the whole, but but a portion of it so well that it is ethically uh, etched in your life. To be able to have then come and pick up your Bible and have not the whole thing, but that one portion, and that could have been evident somewhere in your life. So may we, as we go forth, find ourselves enlightened by the scripture that is light to our paths. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for our word that we may be centered in worship and witness that it gives us. Describes for us what is our norming norm. And then more than that, it's a witness to the revelation of the work of 